Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you'll find these verses on page 1007. Before we hear the reading of God's Word, let us go to Him in prayer. Father, we come before You humbly this morning, asking that the same Spirit who inspired the author to write these words so many years ago, that He would now be here among us at work through Your Word, giving us ears to hear, hearts to receive, minds to understand, and wills to obey that we might bring forth the fruit of your word in our lives to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 26. This is the very word of God. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is the reading of God's word. One of the dangers of preaching passage by passage through a book of the Bible is that you come to a passage like this on the Sunday before Christmas. I thought about that when we decided to continue in our study of Hebrews. I knew that this would be the passage that we would come to, but I hope that you will see this morning that this warning is actually the warning of Christmas. In the call to worship this morning, we heard echoes of the familiar words of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the portrait of God that we are used to seeing, especially this time of year. At this time of year when we remember and celebrate God sending forth his beloved Son into the world in in human flesh, born of a virgin, that he might live a, a life of righteousness on our behalf and then offer that life as the ransom for many. In the story of Christmas, we see God as merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We, we see him as the God who is love. And it is a glorious, beautiful Picture. We are here this morning because God is love. We are here this morning because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it is that 
portrait that we are used to seeing, that makes the portrait set before us in these verses so jarring. We're not used to thinking of God in these terms. Here in these verses, God is described as a judge. He is described as one who consumes his adversaries and and punishes without mercy those who set aside his law. He is a God who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's not the portrait we are used to. To seeing, and it's a portrait that we have a hard time reconciling with the portrait of the God who so loved the world he did not spare his own son. We have a hard time reconciling the God who takes vengeance with the God who, who put forth his son as the sacrifice for our sins. We have a hard time reconciling the God who says, I will punish without mercy with a God who says, I so love the world that I give my son that those who believe in him should not perish. But if we are going to hear the warning in this passage, if we are going to hear the warning of Christmas, then we need to see that the portrait that we are used to seeing, the the portrait of God set before us in passages like John 3.16 And the portrait that we have here in Hebrews 10, we need to see that they portray the same God. They portray the one true and living God. So that is what I want to do this morning. I want to help us to see that this God is the God of Christmas. And I want to help you see that this warning actually magnifies the glory of the giving of the Son. And so let us look together at how we get there. We actually see both aspects of God's character in John 3 itself. Those are such familiar words, but turn there with me. I want you to actually see the passage. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. You're familiar with the story. It's the the story of Nicodemus coming by night to Jesus. And in his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says these familiar words beginning in verse 16. He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. There it is. Maybe the most famous verse in all of Scripture. God so loved the world. And then he reiterates it in verse 17, saying, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. But notice what that leads to in verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. That's why He came. He he came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son, the only Son of God. There you have it. God so loved the world that He gave His Son that whosoever believes in Him should not 
perish. He, he sent his son not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But the very fact that he had to send his son to save the world tells us something about the condition of the world apart from Christ. The very fact that he had to send his son into the world to save the world tells us that the world was already under condemnation. That the world was already in need of saving. That the world was by nature children under wrath. That is what the sending of the son means. And it's been so from the beginning. We, we see this in, in God's character from the beginning. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. One of the earliest revelations of, of God's character to, to the Old Testament people of God. Moses, you'll remember, asked to see God's glory. And God in His grace and in His condescension, he, he allowed Moses to see something of a glimpse of His backside, he said. And this is the vision that he saw. Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 6, we read, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There it is. There's the vision of God that we are used to seeing. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, this, this God who is full of, of mercy and compassion, this God who delights to, to forgive iniquity and sin is at the same time a God who can by no means clear the guilty. He cannot simply overlook sin. He cannot turn a blind eye. He cannot ignore it. He cannot let it go. He cannot leave sins unpunished. It is in his very nature. It's part of His glory. And I want to suggest to you this morning that this inseparable connectedness between God's justice and God's mercy is what makes the wonder of Christmas and the wonder of the Gospel so profound. God cannot leave sin unpunished. And that is good. He will take vengeance on the wicked, and that is good. We would have no hope of, of a new creation. There would be no hope of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven if God tolerated sin. We say even at a human level that all that is necessary for evil to prevail is for good people to do nothing. How much worse if God did nothing? How much worse if he just turned a blind eye to the evils that rage. We have a God who cannot clear the guilty. A God who cannot leave sin unpunished. A God who cannot turn a blind eye to wickedness. And that is our hope. That is good it's what lets us know that in the end, God will bring to completion the good work that He has begun. It is what lets us know that there is a hope that one day all things will be new. 
Because he will destroy the works of the devil. He will undo all wickedness. But of course, there's a threat in that. And the threat is that we are counted among those who are his enemies. The threat is that, that we are, are counted among the wicked. And that is why the rest of the story is such good news, because not only is God a God who, who cannot clear the guilty, but he is a God who delights to forgive. Now how can you hold those two together? How can he not clear the guilty and yet forgive? Only if atonement is made. Only if the debt is paid. Only if the ransom is offered. God delights to forgive iniquity. He, he delights to, to cleanse those who, who come to him seeking only his mercy. And because he delights to forgive he did not spare his own son, but he put him forward as the sacrifice for our sins. That by his being cursed, we might be rescued from the curse. That by his death, we might live. That by him being forsaken, we might be adopted as the very children of God. That is the good news of Christmas. That is the, the profound glory of what God has done through His Son, that He has sent His Son not to condemn the world, but to redeem those who were already under condemnation. We are not condemned because we reject Jesus. We remain under condemnation because we do not receive the one who was sent to make us free. That's the glory of Christmas. That is the glory of the gospel. And it is that glory that is at the heart of the author's warning here in this passage. The author's warning here in this passage, is built upon the understanding that those who reject Jesus are condemned already. Because that's exactly what he is getting at. When he, when he says to, that those who go on sinning deliberately have no further offering for sins, he is presuming that, that those who reject Jesus are remaining under condemnation because they rejected the only hope that was theirs. Now, now to see this, to, to get there, we have to understand what he means by sinning deliberately. And to understand what he means by sinning deliberately, we have to understand the Old Testament background of that phrase. In the Old Testament, unintentional sins were distinguished from what were called high-handed sins. We, we see this, for example, in, in Leviticus chapters 4, 5, and 6, as, as Moses is setting before the people of Israel all of the instructions related to the sin and the, and the guilt offerings that were to be offered. 
There in uh, Leviticus 4, 5, and 6, we, we see clearly in the context that these offerings were to be offered whenever anyone, whether it was the high priest or whether it was a leader or whether it was just an ordinary person, whenever anyone sinned unintentionally, the phrase is, they were to offer these sacrifices. And if they offered these sacrifices, that person or that group of people, depending on the case, they would be atoned for. Their, their sin would be cleansed. Their, their guilt would be removed. But we see in the book of Numbers, in, in Numbers chapter 15, that the person who sins, not unintentionally, but the person who sins with a high hand, he has no access to these sacrifices. We're told that the, the person who sins with a high hand, that person has despised the word of the Lord and he will not be forgiven. That person, the text says, his iniquity will be on him and he will be cut off from among his people. Now, there's some debate about what exactly that phrase means to be cut off from among your people. Most likely it's a euphemistic way of talking about the death penalty. But even if you go another direction, even if you, you think that it's talking about some sort of exile, then it's still clear that the person who sins with a high hand, that person will bear the just penalty of his sins. That person has no access to the sin and the guilt offerings. His sin cannot be atoned for. And so the Old Testament makes it clear that unintentional sins can be atoned for, but high-handed sins cannot. The person who sins unintentionally can be forgiven, but the person who sins with a high hand will not. For him, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. And this is exactly what the author is saying in this passage. He's saying it about the one who sins deliberately, who goes on sinning deliberately after being made aware of the knowledge of the, the truth. You see, the author has made it clear that there is the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus, once for all sacrifice for, for, uh, for sins, uh, allows us to be cleansed from dead works when we come to him humbly and in repentance, asking for merely his grace. But now he says that the one who goes on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, for him there is no further sacrifice for sins. And in saying that, he is employing the same Old Testament distinction between unintentional sins and, and high-handed sins. And so it's obvious that we need to know what these sins refer to. What are these unintentional sins that can be forgiven? And what are these high-handed sins that, that cannot? What does it mean to go on sinning deliberately? Now to some it might seem like the, the answer is, is obvious. Even to ask the question is try to, to get around the truth, but I, I don't think so. If we go with the obvious definitions, an unintentional sin is a sin without intent, something that you do by accident. Where a deliberate sin would be something you do with deliberation and, and forethought. It's something that you do on purpose. But if we say that only unintentional sins can be forgiven, that only those sins that we do on accident, that only those sins that, that we commit without intent, if those are the only sins that can be forgiven, 
then the gospel leaves each and every one of us without hope. Because while you probably have sinned by accident, even this morning, you have also sinned on purpose. You have chosen to do those things that you ought not to do. I can hear my dad's voice when he says, no, they didn't make you angry. You chose to get angry. You didn't, no one made you do that. You, you chose to do that. We, we all know that we sin intentionally. And if, and if the only sins that can be for, forgiven are the sins that we commit on accident, then what hope is there in the gospel? But it's not just the fact that it would leave us without hope. That in and of itself is not an argument. But, but Scripture actually points us to the fact that people who sin in what we would call deliberate ways can be forgiven. Maybe the classic example in all of the Scriptures is, is King David when he sins with Bathsheba and then has her, her husband killed. There was deliberation. There was forethought. And yet... His sins were forgiven. He speaks of the blessing of the one whose sins will not be counted against him. And so what does it mean to sin unintentionally? What does it mean to, to sin deliberately? Well, I want to suggest to you that the text of Leviticus itself gives us a clue. Because in Leviticus 4, 5, and 6, we not only have reference to these unintentional sins, we're also given specific examples of, of some of these sins. In Leviticus chapter 5, one of the examples of an unintentional sin that we see is, is someone who hears a summon to come and testify. They, they basically receive a subpoena and they choose to ignore it. That takes some intention. Another is a person who, who makes a rash vow. Think of Jephthah. Think of those who, who vowed that they would not eat until Paul was dead. Not only did they make a rash vow, they made a rash vow to do something immoral. Those are in the heat of the moment type things, but they still have some intention. And yet these are unintentional sins. Another example that we have in chapter 6 is, is someone who has a breach of faith with his neighbor. Basically someone who defrauds his neighbor. Again, it takes intention. Or something who, someone who finds something and, and keeps it for himself without telling anybody rather than seeking to find its rightful owner. Seems rather deliberate. And yet these are unintentional sins. How can the Scripture call these types of things unintentional? What is it getting at? What does the, the word mean? Well, I think the key to understanding what's going on in Leviticus, the key to understanding this idea of, of unintentional sin is this phrase that's repeated over and over again. If he does these things, it says, and then realizes his guilt. The phrase in, in context means that if, if he becomes convicted of his guilt, if he is moved to repentance. 
if he comes to the place of, of having a true sense of his sin, of, of, of grieving over it, of hating it, and of, and of being ready to turn from it back to God with the full purpose of endeavoring afresh after new obedience, then he can come and he can offer a sin offering. The, the deliberateness of the deliberate sin, the high-handedness of the, of the high-handed sin is the one who says, I am going to use the sacrifice as a license to sin with impunity. I have no intention of walking in obedience. I have no intention of submitting my life to God's law. I'm going to go in my own way. I'm going to do my own thing, but I'm going to be covered. I'm going to be safe because I'm going to come under the blood of the sacrifice. That's why the, the scripture says that the one who sins with a high hand despises the word of the Lord. He has no intention of submitting to it. And for the one who does not repent, for the one who seeks to use grace as a license to sin, there is no grace. You cannot abuse God's mercy in that way. He simply will not let you. If you seek to use his mercy as a license to sin, you will find yourself under wrath. But if, by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, you realize your guilt, if by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit you are convicted of your sin, and if you are willing to turn to him afresh, acknowledging your failure, acknowledging your sin, and saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Strengthen me to, to walk in new obedience. If you are willing to repent, then you can be forgiven, and the sacrifice is for you. And how often can you do this? As often as necessary. Day after day after day, the Old Testament sacrifices were offered. And yes, they were, that was a reminder that the people were still sinners, but it was a reminder that God's grace still stood. And now a once for all sacrifice has been offered, never to be repeated. But Jesus said, pray daily that your sins be forgiven. And they will be forgiven. This is the wonder and the beauty of God's grace to us in the gospel. That if we will come to him humbly, if we will come to him bowing before his lordship, bowing to him as king, acknowledging that we have failed, acknowledging that we have fallen short, then he will have mercy on us. But of course, the warning still stands. If we think that God's love demonstrated in the gift of Christmas, if we, if we think that that means that we can now live as we please, if we think that that means that we can now sin with impunity, then the author of Hebrews says as clearly as he can say, for that one, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There is no sacrifice other than the sacrifice of Christ. There is no other hope of, of atonement. There is no other hope of, of reconciliation. And if you reject Him, 
If you spurn the the Son of God and trample Him underfoot, if you profane the blood of the the covenant by which you were sanctified, if you outrage the Spirit of grace who is at work in your life, there is no other gospel. If you reject Jesus, you remain under condemnation. That's the warning. So He pleads with you this morning, do not allow the gift of Christmas to deceive you. Do not let it think that that God is other than He is. Yes, He is a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But yes, He is also a God who will by no means clear the guilty. And so if you are here this morning and you are guilty before Him, if you know yourself to be a sinner, if you have been convinced of your guilt, then tremble. Tremble. For the one who sets aside the law of God will be punished. He cannot overlook sin. The question before you this morning is will you be punished in Christ? Will He die in your place? Or will you be punished on your own? Will you drink the cup of God's wrath for yourself? The good news of Christmas is that there's no reason to drink it yourself, for He has already drunk it for you. He has drunk the cup of God's wrath even to the very dregs, that you might instead know the cup of His blessing. And therefore, even this morning, call upon His name. Look to Him alone for salvation. Turn from your sin to Him with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience, knowing that none who call upon His name will ever be put to shame. For He came not to condemn, but to save. And whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we come before you this morning humbly asking that you would have mercy on us. That you would give us ears to hear. That you would give us hearts to receive. And that you would protect us from deliberate sin, Father. That you would protect us from foolishly thinking we could use your grace as a license to sin. Father, may we instead know your grace to be the power that saves us from sin, not only from its guilt, but also from its power. Father, may we come to know you and to serve you and to honor you as our one and true King, through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.